I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by the amazing Jesse of I Dream of Jesse. How are you, my dear? I'm doing great, Adam. How you doing? I'm so excited to have you. So excited. Um, it is September 1st, and we have a wonderful show for you all. Um, before we start, actually, you know what? Just to run down what, what we're going to be talking about course as already mentioned i dream of jesse this is going to be episode five the fellowship of the deathly thrones and if it is anything like the previous i dream of jesse's it will be fantastic not to put any weight on your shoulders <laughs> no, no no pressure no pressure it better be amazing <laughs> uh, in the infernal informant montana teacher gets 30 days in jail in rape of 14 year old student who later kills herself and White House girds for battle with Congress. Um, that first one was sent in by a listener. Thank you very much. Every time you guys, in it, obviously, this podcast is, yeah. I mean, to be blunt, what I want to do. But I love it when you guys send in suggestions for topics or articles that you want me to address or questions, as Nine Cents Letters was created for. So thank you very much for that. And that first one is is a perfect representation of just that and the creature feature i just watched star trek into darkness i'm not a trekkie uh i'm going to talk about this show and uh i really dug it um so that being said that's what this show is going to be about let's start with uh a little few uh notes here first of all if you guys do have any questions uh for nine cents uh send them to info at nine cents i have a contact form on the website nine cents if you want to send it in that way as well um however you want to do it uh, i respond to everything that's sent to me and those of you who have sent me questions i just sent off a few replies today and sweet fucking hell it is like in-depth questions and, and i would want to say um if you're thinking about sending in a question uh, first, check with the search engine on the website to see if I've already addressed it in an episode that you can listen to. Second, check if it's about Satanism, there's a wealth of information, not only in print, but online. Check out churchofsatan.com. Your question is probably addressed there. Now, I will always address uh, your questions if you send them to me. Um, I will probably direct you to somewhere if it's already answered. Uh, it's not me saying, hey, dumbass, it's right here, but it's me saying that this answer is already out there. You don't need to ask me about it. I am not an authority for Satanism. I do not speak with the uh, as an agent for the Church of Satan. This entire podcast is simply my, my uh, expression of Satanism, my perspective of Satanism. So keep that in mind. Um, I do not want to come off as some authority because I am not. I am just, uh, you know, a podcast. Uh, host so that being said um greater magic episode is coming up people 
This is going to be a good one. This is going to be a really good one, and I have been doing a lot of research for it to ensure that I know what I'm talking about, and I still don't think I'm going to. I'm being joined by... Should I tell you already? It's only September. You still have a month out. I'm going to wait to break it to you on who it is, but uh, I've got an amazing guest, and we're going to be talking about not what we've discussed already, not greater magic that's plain and... and, and, and served up on a plate uh, via the satanic bible or the satanic rituals or uh, um, satanic scriptures. This is the fringes of satanic rituals. This is those shapes that you see in the corner of your eye as you're conducting a ritual. These are the demons that you're calling. This is what we're talking about, people. Not the cut and dry bullshit. Not the, not the theory and practice. We're going to be delving into some real, real fringe topics. And I want your questions. If you haven't already, and those of you who have, thank you very much, um, send them to me, info at 9centspodcast.com. Be a part of this. It's, it's going to be exciting. And if you don't send them in, well, we're still going to give you an hour of good content anyway. Maybe more. Depends. But that's the plan. And um, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> blabbering on. Um, man camp. I just got back today from the man camp. And I <clears throat> here's something that I want to address quickly. I get shit about this thing all the time, about how gay it is and how this is just some cover for some weird homosexual thing. <laughs> all the time, because it's just guys going on a camp out. And it started as me and two other really good friends just wanting, you know, we have very busy, different lives and we never get to hang out. We never get to see each other. So, And you we were just sharing a sleeping bag. That's all it was. <laughs> <laughs> It was a big sleep, to be fair. It was, a, we had three of them zipped together, and at least one of us had our underwear on. So it was totally cool. On the, no, and that is like the genuine, genuine consensus is that, oh, this is so gay. Um, after this one, I'm thinking that it may be. There was more balls in the open air than maybe there should have been in this man camp out. Like, there's nothing, you know, no one did anything homosexual if, if you don't count just exposing yourself. But it did happen. Like, I, I don't know about you, Jesse, and maybe maybe you can shed some fantasy light on this. Um, I, I love the idea of a bunch of guys going out and <laughs> airing their balls together. That's just, that's wonderful. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> do girls do girls do this? And let me let me explain. Um, sometimes you just have to brain people. So, and, and this is you. you uh, you have your pants on and you just sort of, you know, unzip and just have your balls hanging out so they look like a brain. <laughs> and you just stand up to someone and just talk to them and see how long it takes them to notice. And sometimes, you know, they're like stoking a fire and you just stand next to them and they're like eye level. And the, you, nothing happens. It's just, the, you know, they freak out because there's balls on their face. Sometimes you just have to do that. Do girls do anything like that? I, I don't know if that's a gay thing, but that's definitely <laughs> a guy thing. <laughs> Girls don't do this? I know they don't have balls, but you know. Uh, never girls that I hung out with, and I knew a lot of dykes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. All right, maybe this is just because we have stuff that hangs out too much. <laughs> yeah, we it would could, do like... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it could be that. I mean, well, I no, because the, the women would be like throwing their breasts in each other's faces, and yeah. I don't see that happening. Hmm. See, I but with but I can girls. pretend that it did if you want to hear. <laughs> oh, I do. I, I already do. This is a long-running fantasy and some sort of a justification for me doing it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Everyone does it. 
But there's nothing like the perfect photo op of, uh, you know, just some guys hanging around getting a good picture, and then I just flop out my dick, and then it <laughs> ruins the whole scene. I, I can't help but find a small amount of joy in doing that, ruining a good photo. Yeah, send that to your ma, peeps. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, it's just, I don't know. So maybe it is a gay thing. Maybe it's latent homosexuality that I haven't fucking admitted to, but, um, you know, but, nothing but else happened. <laughs> you run the risk, though, if people are taking pictures, if nobody's noticed that it's out. And they shoot a picture and they send it to their mom. <laughs> I, I don't know if I should be more offended or the mom should be more offended that no one noticed that it was hanging out. That's the <laughs> what? Where is it? What? That? Are you sure? Mm. <laughs> and so my my eternal excuse will be that it's cold. <laughs> it shrinks. <laughs> um, all right. Well, maybe girls don't do it. So maybe it's a little gay. Whatever. I'm okay with my sexuality enough to. Still fucking do it. Um, no, but we, we got rained on the entire fucking time. Um, there were brief moments of sun, and uh, in those moments, everyone got burned, and the insects were crazy. But I got to tell you, it was still, um, you know, we, we went fishing. We caught a bunch of fish in this wonderful reservoir. It took us three and a half hours to get there. We almost died on the way back, and that's not hyperbole. Uh, there was so much mud from the rain, we were just sliding off of this mountain, and it was... It was amazing that we did not uh, go off, especially this, this one corner. I was trying to control my car, and uh, it, it just slid right off the edge of the road, and it, it must have, at the last second, caught some dry gravel or a rock or a tree stump because I immediately, just seconds after, or seconds before going off this uh, little mini ravine, um, caught some traction and fishtailed back onto the muddy-ass road. It was very pucker-licious. I was <laughs> Holy crap. terrified. Um, like, literally, I probably would have crapped myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the other two guys in the car were, <laughs> like, my, my, my nephew, which makes it even more weird that this tomfoolery was happening, was in the, behind me. Uh, I brought him with me on this uh, man camp. And he, whenever he's scared, because he's terrified of heights, and we had to literally climb a mountain to get and go back down into this little valley in order to get to the, the reservoir. So there were moments of pure just cliff inches away from the road. It was very fucking terrifying. And so he, every time he would get close to any type of deep ravine or cliff, he would emit this like, in the back seat. <laughs> I just, I, I just, I couldn't get this image out of my mind. Like he was some weird um, Down syndrome kid and i'm sure that's gonna offend people i don't mean to offend them i'm just trying to explain down syndrome kid like expressing like weird reactions like just this screech right behind me and i knew we were close to a fucking cliff and i'm just trying to focus just keep as much control as i can on this car and i can't slow down because i'm sliding on the mud and i can't right myself i'm just fishtailing through this damn muddy road i'm in a tiny ford focus sedan which <laughs> has oh, no four-wheel drive and we have no weight because we're on our way back so all the drink and all the food has been consumed and it's just us gripping for dear life with a squee coming from behind me it was it was very entertaining uh but yeah there's very incriminating photos and it was a lot of fun though it was it was and i caught some fish which is always fun did you at least have a second vehicle so if one went off the road <laughs> yeah there were five people total that went this year and the second vehicle was after actually further behind us, 
and I think they took a slightly different route, but they they were actually like a four wheel drive Jeep, like a Grand Cherokee or something like that. And they were having just as much trouble as I was, which kind of made me feel a little bit better after the fact. But at the moment, it didn't fucking matter. Like we were just terrified we were going to die. Uh. And it was all compounded by the fact like on the way up and this. OK, I know I'm taking a lot of time with this. Bear with me here for a second. I'll try to wrap it up quickly. Every year we do this, you know, someone new picks the spot we go to. So whatever goes wrong with getting to or from that spot is that person's fault because they picked the damn spot. This time is my buddy D and he picked this super secluded spot because it was the weekend. We didn't think that there were going to be any other people this far out in the middle of nowhere. But there was, this is a federal uh, forest, a federally um, protected forest that has no paved road to it. It is completely all gravel and then pure rock and mud to get to. And it is so deep in the back country that in, you shouldn't be there without a four-wheel drive monstrous truck at all. So everything that happened was his damn fault. On the way up, as soon as, you know, once we hit that packed gravel road, I immediately was thinking, oh, I should not be bringing my floor <laughs> into this mess. This is a nightmare. And we know that there was flash flood warnings literally days before us heading up here. We didn't fucking care because we're stupid. So we head up there anyway, and we're like texting him saying, because he wasn't coming until later in the middle of the night, um, that y you better watch out. There are some really horrible roads. And the further we got up, the worse the roads got. I had a hubcap fly off my car. We, we drove past this. It must have been stereotypical inbred incestual couple in this trashy ass sedan uh, on the side of the road, just staring at us as we drove by, and we were convinced that they were going to shoot us and eat us. It was it was like that. Like we swear we saw banjos in the back seat <laughs> on the way up. <laughs> was just about to ask about the banjos. <laughs> yeah. So we're creating this entire fiction about these people on our way up, and I I hear myself run over something, and my buddy's like, "Don't worry about it. It's just some metal, like a license plate or something." We keep going up, and my car immediately overheats. And I shut it off before it can actually like start smoking or anything. I just saw the needle, you know, running into the red. And it's never done that before. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of worried. We're not even, we're still an hour and a half away and we're deep into this national forest. And we are in the middle of nowhere, no cell service or anything. And then this couple, this incestuous, uh, retarded, backwoods couple comes driving up to us. And I'm like reaching for a gun that I don't own in this car like <laughs> we have to do something to fend ourselves off they're gonna eat us or something and uh he says one of you boys lose a ford hubcap as if there's more than one ford car or more than one driver <laughs> in this area but still and then his his wife which looks like i, I lived in arizona from, uh, throughout my whole college career and um there was a lot of really ugly lesbian women there that we would term bull or bush dykes um, and that's what his wife, presumed wife, looked like. Um, and she just turns the car off and there's this twisted thing of a child in the back seat. And he like gets out, starts like literally kicking rocks and pulling little leaves off of, uh, the plants that are on the edges of the road. Like looking at us at the side of his face, like, I reckon it's only a couple more twists down the road. And immediately in my head, I'm like, he's trying to split us up. This is how every horror movie starts. There's some weird fucked up people that split the group up and they take one guy and then they take the next guy. Like we are living in a horror movie at this moment. And then my rational brain kicked in and said, shut the fuck up. Your hubcap's just a few turns down. I'll go get it. 
And so my buddy did not want to be left alone here with these people, but I didn't either. So I just told him, it's my car. You sit tight. I'll go get it. And I left him. I, I consigned him to death. I know it. And I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> I, I saved myself. I can run. Was, was your nephew there as well at this point? No, or? he actually came later. So it was just okay. me and this other guy. So I knew he was he would fucking die. He cannot fight back, not against this retard strength power. He's fucked. Uh, I go hiking down the mountain, and I'm I'm a good 45 minutes or so down this mountain, like going down switchbacks. I don't see where my damn hubcap is. And he only said it was two freaking uh, uh, switchbacks down. So now I'm convinced that they've, like, killed him and either used him as a sex slave or for food. Like, that must be the only answer. It's the only rational thing that could possibly happen. So I start my way back, and I'm trying to pick up my step, and I see this truck drive by real slowly, and these just hillbillies sort of look at me. They don't respond. They just give me this dirty look like I don't belong in the middle of this, which, I mean, I guess I don't, but still, I don't belong in this road in any second. If I said anything, they would just pull out the rifle and shoot me in the face or, again, eat me. Apparently, there's a loss for food up here in my fantasy. <laughs> um, and then on my way back, literally two switchbacks down, I see the hubcap. Like, I walk right fucking by it. 40 minutes later, I find it. I get way back to the top, and, you know, he's just like, well, I couldn't beat off when you were gone because there's people around. I'm like, why the fuck are you trying to beat off in the middle of the forest anyway? Like, what is wrong with you? Why? Who are my friends? What are you? <laughs> it's just like that was the only thing he was thinking of, and I was thinking of him dying and eaten and me being killed and hunted or something. It was weird, but yeah, the car broke down. It a normal three hour drive or three and a half hour turned into six and a half hour, and it was just an entire like crazy adventure story on the way and back. So, and weird. this and this is what you do for fun. Exactly, <laughs> like it's not bad enough <laughs> that it costs a ton of money to do this. I just you know, yeah, it's, it's good times, good times. So yeah, I, maybe the the ultimate theme of this is if you have the opportunity to get away from your family and expose your balls, don't. <laughs> Just stay home. <laughs> Work on your yard. Teach your kid to ride a bike. Uh, keep it tucked in your pants, and uh, you won't have to worry about the backcountry people killing you. Oh, or at least bring a gun next time. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I was so worried. All right, I've, I've bullshitted way too long. Um, how about we dive into uh, my favorite segment, I Dream with Jesse. Okay. All right. Jesse! What do you want? Well, first, Jesse, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to address me as master. I, I am your master, after all. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, master. That's better. Now look, I've got guests coming over tonight, and I want you to entertain them. What do I look like, a belly dancer? Oh, I, I assume that was part... I mean, the outfit, it, it kind of suggests... You may be used to dance. Listen, the gin put me in the bottle. He forgot to add the preservatives. Now, the outfit may be wrinkle-free, but what in it ain't. You don't like it? Call the number on the bottle and complain. Do elves and orcs, knights and dragons, or giants and trolls get you pumped? If so, then you too might be a fan of fantasy fiction. If not, well then may I suggest that epic tales of mythical creatures and make-believe lands are exactly the stuff most religions are founded on. Both Satan and Loki are mythical creatures from make-believe lands. 
Why limit the epic fantasy fiction that inspires you to texts regarded by others as religious? In 2001, one of the greatest epic fantasies written was adapted for film. I speak, of course, of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Sure, it was written by a Christian and promotes Christian values, but then the same could be said about the New Testament, and we still managed to pick out the juicy bits of those books for our own purposes. I first read Lord of the Rings as a young teen, so really, orcs and elves have been as much a part of my life as angels and demons. Seeing the film adaptation brought it all to life for me once again as an adult. The visual elements, the music, most of the acting, it all carried me away emotionally. If you've never read the books, I'd say skip them for now and just rent the DVDs. You'll be investing less of your time in something that may or may not work for you. I'd also suggest you stop watching the third film after the big battle when all the characters get cleaned up. Let me explain why. What Lord of the Rings gets wrong, and a big part of what Christianity gets wrong, is to assume a false dichotomy of good and evil. So in Lord of the Rings, after evil is destroyed, what must occur is heaven on earth, or Middle Earth in this case. In order to show heaven on Middle Earth, every character has to have all their issues resolved. They need to find their rightful place in the world, pair up with their partner, meet up with their preordained fate, etc. No strings can be left hanging. All subplots must be tied up in neat little bows to show that once evil is eradicated, chaos and conflict cease. As a result, the end of the third movie might just be the most long-winded, snore-inducing conclusion ever filmed. So why am I recommending this? Well, I want to keep this episode as spoiler-free as possible. It isn't much of a spoiler to tell you that the basic plot of the movie is that the bad guy, Sauron, created a magic ring and that the good guys must destroy it. It also isn't much of a spoiler to say that in order to destroy it, the ring must be taken back to the volcano in which it was forged. Oh, and a uh, big surprise, the good guys win. So basically, the story is an epic journey that takes something bad back to its roots to destroy it. In that sense, this tale strikes me as an epic quest of compassion. Ever trace back a problem in your life to its very origin? Everybody's got some shit that happened to them as a kid. Odds are, bad things happened to you that led to bad behaviors in your teen years, which may have led to bad habits in early adulthood. So maybe now you're an adult and you're still doing stupid shit in this one area of your life, all because of something that happened to you as a kid. Think of the act of tracing it back, acknowledging what you did today, last week, last month, all the way back to this one event that taught you to react unproductively to a certain stimulus. This can be an emotional, epic journey, and if you can honestly look back and admit how much this one event has been hurting you, you'll be well motivated to stop it from harming you further. Did getting dumped cause you to adopt a fake persona or outward appearance? Did getting raped inhibit you sexually? Did losing all your toys in a house fire cause you to resist ownership so that now you subconsciously cause the breakage or loss of every nice thing given to you rather than become attached to it? I've seen people do some pretty weird stuff, all because of childhood dramas. The Ring and the Lord of the Rings can be seen as symbolic of a problem that was never properly dealt with and has been festering. Problems with long histories don't have easy solutions. An epic emotional journey in the form of a compassion ritual may be just what the doctor ordered. In Lord of the Rings, when the ring is destroyed, it doesn't suddenly undo all the damage that occurred in the past. It simply means that this one source of evil can no longer do any harm. If you can take the emotional journey back to the source of one of your problems, perhaps that source of evil will no longer do you any harm. Another aspect of Lord of the Rings and fantasy fiction in general that I like is the idea of leaving home and hearth and normalcy behind and experiencing things few others even dream of. 
I know I said stop the film before the end, but there is one brief scene at the end where the four hobbits return to the Shire and sit down for a beer. There's this silence before they touch cups and drink. This calls back to an earlier scene where the four are all loud and rowdy and intermingling with the other hobbits in the tavern. They're not doing that now. Captured in this momentary silence is the realization that the four of them have been through something no one around them will ever understand. I feel that way myself when I return to the office on a Monday morning. The fact that this is a long journey with all kinds of setbacks is also inspiring. If you've ever set yourself a goal that will take at least five years to accomplish, you may know what I mean. A lot can happen in five years. People you know come and go, the scenery changes, and temptations to change the goal to something easier crop up when the going gets tough. This epic story has all of that to it, so it feels good to watch the good guys see it through. But enough about Lord of the Rings, I want to talk about Harry Potter, the seven-book series by J.K. Rowling for which the film adaptations also began coming out in 2001. Harry Potter also has a battle of good and evil going through it, but this time the good isn't saintly good and the evil is sometimes just poor judgment. As such, the epic tale of Harry Potter doesn't seem nearly so similar to a religious myth as the epic of Lord of the Rings. Again, I'd say start with the films if this is new to you, in part because it's less time invested in something that may not work for you, but another better reason to see the films is that so much of what's inspirational is in the visual adaptations. Home and Lair decorating ideas abound, but I want to talk instead about the characters. In The Satanic Witch, LeVay talks about having consistency of style. It would do no good to call yourself Nosferatu Dracul and walk around in khakis and sandals. The young wizards dress in either school uniforms or regular clothes, but the old wizards, my god, they've got style. Watch this and imagine them as a gathering of Satanists. Would you measure up in a group like that? If not, perhaps you're not working lesser magic to the extent that you can. Take, for example, Severus Snape. Severus sounds like severe. Snape sounds like both snake and snipe. Snape's appearance is a tall man dressed in black robes over black clothes, sporting long black hair. In several scenes, he's shown walking quickly so his hair is blowing outward and his robes billow, creating a figure ever larger and darker and more ominous. And he talks like this. At one point in the third book, a student named Severus Snape as the thing he fears most. Oh yeah, this is a complete character. Then there's Rita Skeeter, a minor character, but a great example of a complete witch. The name Rita, for me, calls to mind Rita Hayworth. And certainly Rita Skeeter's style is reminiscent of the 1930s, 1940s. She wears the feminine cut, waist-defining clothing from the era and has her hair in a curly, blonde Marilyn Monroe style with not a strand out of place. She sways her hips and walks and smiles seductively. At no point does she utter the line, why don't you come up and see me sometime? But you almost expect her to. This is a lady who can handle herself. And then there's her last name, Skeeter. Skeeter is slang for mosquito. Rita Skeeter is a reporter known for her sensationalist work. She buzzes around people, watching and waiting for an opportunity to profit off their lives. Vampiric, I know, but I love this character. Last example, because I can't leave her out, is Bellatrix Lestrange. The last name, Lestrange, tells you she's going to be the one that stands out as weird even in a group of weirdos. Then there's the first name, Bellatrix. Bella means beautiful, Trix means feminine. Beautiful and feminine and weird. Like Severus Snape, she dresses all in black with black hair, but she's all curls and curves and lace and ruffles. While Snape's movements result in billowing robes that create a dominant mass on the screen, Lestrange's expressive moments create a chaos of activity with hair and ruffles flying every which way. Not surprisingly, she's the only Death Eater that needs to be reined in by the other Death Eaters. She's just too bad for the bad guys. 
Hopefully I've inspired you to at least Google the characters, if not watch the films. But I can't leave a discussion of Harry Potter without mentioning a bit of rare magic called a horcrux that comes up in the Half-Blood Prince. It's explained as a dark arts attempt at immortality, and something that can only be created by murdering another human being. I bring this up because, while on the whole, Harry Potter is a very magic positive, this one spell has all the white light hypocrisy of Wicca behind it. We don't sacrifice animals because we create the energy needed for our spells within ourselves. If we were to create horcruxes, no one would need to die. But I also bring it up because I like the idea of magically forming an object that will live on beyond your bodily death. That's immortality in the satanic sense. I created my first horcrux in high school. Just for fun, I took all the major characters of all the books we had to read in our literature class junior year, and I wrote a new story where they all interacted with each other. I no longer have a copy, and I'm sure if I did, I would cringe to read it. But I gave it to my teacher, and he found it so funny, he shared it with the entire faculty, my class, and every junior year literature class he taught from then on. That's a horcrux, and every Satanist should have a horcrux, or two, or more. But enough about Harry Potter, because there's one more epic fantasy that's come out that, that I want to speak about that's every bit as inspiring, and that is The Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. R. Martin, popularized by the HBO series Game of Thrones. Finally, fantasy fiction that does not include a theme of good versus evil. It's just people with the same conflicting values as the people we all know. Each character is born into a particular circumstance that colors his or her view of life. And with the false dichotomy of good and evil removed, the heroes and villains are yours for the choosing. That doesn't mean this epic is devoid of values, however. I'm not sure an author can resist exposing you to his or her values. In Lord of the Rings, Sauron was the bad guy, sure, but the greed of the dwarves was also castigated. In Harry Potter, Voldemort was the bad guy, but nothing kind was said about the practice of divination, and its instructor was made out to be a fraud and a drunk. So perhaps we can infer that J.R.R. Tolkien was concerned about the excesses of capitalism prominent in England while he was writing. Similarly, I suspect J.K. Rowling is bothered by the foolishness of astrology, tessimancy, and other forms of pseudoscience popular in England today. In George R.R. R. Martin's books, greed and divination are not treated as character flaws. The sin that gets punished the most here is idealism. Trusting in honor, honesty, and justice can get you killed. It's a tale beyond good and evil written by a jaded author. What's not to like? Unlike the first two epics, Song of Ice and Fire delves into religions as well. There are the old gods who call to mind tree-hugging druids, the new gods who are more like those of Greece and Rome, and the god of light, which is monotheistic. The best thing about these religions is they are all portrayed as tools. Tools characters can use to help themselves or their loved ones, or tools characters can use to, va to vanquish their enemies. One of people's favorite characters is Tyrion Lannister, and certainly there's a lot about him that's satanic, but I want to talk about his brother, Jaime Lannister. It's not a spoiler to tell you a bit of his character's back history. He joined the King's Guard, swearing to protect the King with his life. Then the King went mad and started killing people left and right. Jaime killed the King and has endured the nickname Kingslayer ever since. Jaime owns Kingslayer in a way we might all do well to emulate when we call ourselves Satanists. When other characters call him Kingslayer, it's to say Jamie isn't good enough for the rest of the population. His society demands a standard that he freely chose not to live up to because his own standards dictated a different course of action. Calling him Kingslayer also negates everything else he's done for the realm before and since that one incident. No good deed matters once a holy vow is broken. Are Satanists giving it any more leniency? 
I don't mean to make Jamie out to be a hero, either. Early on in the story, he does something very much against the tenets of Satanism, which I won't describe because I want to keep this episode as spoiler-free as possible. However, I will say that this one reprehensible act does fit the notion might is right. And I love it when something challenges my worldview. Members of other religions will consult scholars or priests or gurus. They look to others to guide them when the rules seem to contradict. We're our own gods and must decide these things for ourselves. I've never seen any inherent contradiction within the tenets of Satanism or I'd have quit the church by now. But life is messy. We can wholeheartedly vow to rejoice in the fleshly life one minute and then suffer an illness with such painful side effects as to make the fleshly life an abomination the next. We can all abstain from something, telling ourselves it's discipline enacted for delayed gratification, but then wonder, am I needlessly missing out? There are those who wear the good guy badge and those who wear the Baphomet much the same way. I won't respect you for trying to be a perfect Satanist. I might respect you for your efforts to be a perfect you. Jamie Lannister wasn't trying to wear the good guy badge. He set out to make the best decisions at every step in the game. He took the vows he took, believing he was doing what was best for himself and the people he cared for. But as he explains at one point, when you vow to protect the king, and you vow to protect the innocent, and the king starts slaughtering the innocent, vows don't matter so much. He killed the king and accepted the bad guy badge and thenceforth tried to only honor his own values. He found, even then, it's not so easy to be your own god. So let's wrap this up with the single most important lesson to be learned by epic fantasy fiction. You'll never make it as a writer without at least two initials in your name. Therefore, this episode is titled, The Fellowship of the Deathly Thrones by I.D.O. Jesse. This is what everyone is listening <laughs> wishes that they could do. <laughs> and haven't reacted to. Oh, uh, wow. that was fantastic! That was amazing. I caught myself wanting to break in and talk about some of these ideas so badly. Another amazing <laughs> "I Dream of Jesse." Thank you so much. Ah, uh, thank you. I know you hear it from me. Well, you read it from me when I type it, and I know that sometimes you you may or may not hear it from other people, either on the podcast or through various social networking sites, but I, I think you are a, a wonderful representation of what it means to be a Satanist. And these episodes that you put out are of immense worth and are so... They have layers of understanding to them. Uh, and and they, they invoke thought. And that is so much more powerful than just someone reading off a statement or giving their point of view like what I do. Uh, it, it makes you come to your uh, own conclusion through internal debate. And I am not alone by saying thank you so much for doing these. This is fantastic. Well, I appreciate that. I keep waiting until I piss somebody off. It, hey, I, and I encourage it. If, if you disagree with anything that um, Jesse has, has said or done, more power to you. There, there's where can they find you on Twitter? Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, it's at damned lucky d a m n e d l u c k y. So reach out to her on Twitter at damned lucky and let her know if you disagree with her. That's that's what that's your voice responding to her voice. That's fantastic. I'm going to be surprised if you find many people that do that because what what you bring to the table is very very different and very original and resonates in. Um, I, this is going to sound political, but I don't mean it in those in, in that in that term in that frame, uh, uh, um, uh, a nonpartisan way. Like 
what you speak to doesn't necessarily um, violate any one individual's conceptions of reality, but it, it invokes discussion within themselves, and that's hard to disagree with. So I'm not sure if you're going to piss anyone off, but you know what? It may happen. If you, if you disagree, let her know. Just a thought. <laughs> um, I, 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 I dig your segment so much. I'm so happy you agreed to come on the, the podcast. You really enriched the show. Um, how about we move on to Infernal Informant? Great. Psst. Hey, 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 come here. Psst. What? Huh? Me? Do I know you? Hey, you're a religious man, aren't you? No more than anyone else. Listen, listen, I got a secret. It's, it's been eating me up, and I got to share it with someone. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I don't know you. No, listen, man. It's about you. It's about your life. You're about to have what, what alcoholics refer to as your moment of clarity. What are you talking about? Are you okay, son? Sins are indisposable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They are only reliable weapons of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's, it's necessary to him that there be sinning. Who the fuck are you, kid? I'm your infernal informant. Okay, this is CNN.com and prosecutors weigh appeal of 30-day rape sentence in Montana. And this is actually uh, from Paul Verkhamen uh, and Kayon Lang. And this is actually suggested, as, as I was reading earlier on, Montana teacher gets 30 days in jail uh, in rape of the 14-year-old student who later kills herself. Uh, so they've updated this individual article. Um, and it was last updated on the 30th of August. Prosecutors in Billings, Montana, are looking for legal standing to fight a 30-day sentence handed down to a teacher who admitted to raping his 14-year-old student. The girl later took her own life. This case is very important, as I've said before. This resulted in the loss of one of our young people in my community, said Scott Tweedo, a prosecutor with the Yellowstone County Attorney's Office. We take these changes, or I'm sorry, charges very seriously, and we fight for those victims. He said he strongly disagrees with the sentence District Judge G. Todd Bow gave to Stacey Dean rambled this week. CNN obtained a copy of a memo from Tweedo's office to the Montana Attorney's General's office, which is reviewing the case. In the letter, attorneys argue the relevant statute was misapplied and the minimum sentence that could be imposed to Rambold's case was two years. As prosecutors weigh a possible appeal, hundreds of protesters rallied at the Billings Courthouse Thursday demanding the judge step down. The protest was organized in part by the National Organization for Women. Demonstrators waved signs and called for a review of Bow's prior caseload, a reporter from CNN affiliate KTVQ said. One poster read simply, Resign. Another said, Justice for Cheris, referring to the teenage victim in the case, Cheris Morales. The demand and goal of this is to ask the judge to resign. The broader message is to really unite as a community against victim blaming, said protest organizer Sheena Davis, adding that the protest aimed to address a larger issue on how we protect children from rape in the justice system. So far, more than 33,000 people have signed a petition at moveon.org demanding the bow, that bow resign. I told him the judge was wrong. Cherise's mother is outraged that Rambold, who admitted raping the girl while he was a teacher at her school, received only a month in prison, whereas Cherise took her own life. 
It discourages other kids from coming forward. If they come forward, what's going to happen? Nothing. Alia Hanlon told CNN in an interview that aired Thursday night. She struggled to speak as she talked about trying to explain the sentence to her other children. They said, oh, did he hurt her mom? Well, yes, he did. Oh, what happened to her? Nothing, she said, adding, I told them the judge was wrong. In earlier interviews, Hanlon said she was particularly upset that the judge said Therese seemed older than her chronological age and was as much in control of the situation as the teacher. How could she be in control of the situation? He was the teacher. She was a student. She wasn't in control of anything. She was 14, Hanlon told CNN. Bao apologized on Wednesday. I made some references to the victim's age and control, he told KTVQ. I'm not sure just what I was attempting to say at that point, but it didn't come out correct. What I said was demeaning to all women, not what I believe in, and irrelevant to the sentencing. About the sentencing itself, Bao said he would file an addendum to the case file to better explain his rationale. Okay, so I'm... I'm ready to blow my lid, but I'm going to try to keep going before I do, just to get this case details in order uh, before. The case began in 08 when Cherise, then 14, was a student at Billings Senior High School and Rambold, uh, then 42, was a teacher. Hanlon claims Rambold's pre-sexual grooming of her daughter led to the pair having sex. School officials learned of the relationship and Rambold resigned. Later that year, authorities charged Rambold with three counts of sexual intercourse without consent. This is not probably the kind of rape most people think about, Bao said. It was not a violent, forcible, beat-the-victim-rape like you see in the movies. But it was nonetheless a rape. It was a troubled young girl, and he was a teacher, and this should not have occurred. As this case wound its way through the legal system, Cherise committed suicide. She was a few weeks shy of her 17th birthday. As a result of their sexual assault and its aftermath, Cherise experienced severe emotional distress, humiliation and embarrassment, and fell into irreversible depression that tragically led to her taking her own life on February 6, 2010, Hanlon said in a complaint filed against Rambo. Hanlon told CNN the relationship was to blame for her daughter's death. Well, it definitely had something to do with it, she said. A teenager's whole life is about school and their friends, and he turned everyone against her. The agreement. With Cherise's death, the prosecution entered into what is known as a deferred prosecution agreement with Rambold. This meant that all charges against Rambold would be dismissed if he completed a sex offender treatment program and met other requirements. One of them was to have no contact with children. <laughs> Hold on, let me say that again. All charges against him would be dismissed if he completed a treatment program and met other requirements. Is he a teacher or a Catholic priest? Really? <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. I I can't believe this, fucking. This is insane to me. So, if you are in a position of power and authority, you cannot have sex with someone else. That's just point blank that's under your authority or under your power. Point blank, you cannot do that. There's no such thing as a consensual sexual partner if you have power over them. Now add in the age factor and whether she was emotionally a 17-year-old or not doesn't mean shit because legally she was 14 and you were her fucking teacher. 
And and what? Because it's not okay. I, maybe I let me ask you, and and I don't mean to infer anything by this. Just a blanket question to lead us in further discussion. Did you ever have a crush on an older individual that was maybe a teacher or or something like that? Oh yeah. It's a normal fucking thing. It doesn't mean that they are emotionally ready for sex or that you should, uh, could, I don't know, trick them or, or, or convince them that this is what should happen. And what kind of a pathetic man needs to go after a 14-year-old? What kind of a disgusting, grown-ass adult has nothing going on in their life? They have to target a child. I mean, age be damned. Emotional emotional response or your interpretation of their actions be damned that's a child and and that's what you want what the fuck is wrong with you what well i will say that and i certainly don't mean this to say anything bad about all teachers it's just one of those professions that if that's your thing you're going to get a job in that profession because it gives you opportunities to do your thing so, I, and I don't, because I don't want like a witch hunt against teachers, but you do have to keep that in mind. Anybody, particularly men, but sometimes women too, anybody who chooses to work with children, there's a higher level of suspicion. I mean, call it profiling if we, you will, but those are the occupations those people try to get into. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and, and there are numerous news stories that I never cover of, of women uh, being in relationships with – and it's funny how with women, it's them having sex or them being in a relationship with a student. When it's a man, it's him raping the student. In every case, it's raping of the student because it's it's about whether or not you have direct power over that individual and whether or not they're in a position of consent. And a child – is never, power or no, in a position of consent. And if you are in a position of power, there is no such thing as consent. It's very simple. And, and like you said, certainly there are people who go into these fields because uh, maybe that is what they're looking for. I mean, that, that's a pretty bold statement. And then I'm sure sometimes, I mean, you just... You're around, and, and anyone who's been in a work environment can attest to this. You're around people for so long, you start growing affection for them, and you start having feelings. But there's a point when you have to stop as a, a rational human being and say, whoa, 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 this is a child. This is not a grown-up person. And because she may have a crush on you, uh, and, and that's taking the innocent approach to this whole thing, does not mean it's okay to have sex with them. And it's certainly not okay for you to work your disgusting tricks to convince her that it's okay or him to have sex with you. It's never okay. And it's always rape. Even but, if, I'm sorry, so, go ahead. even if I, and I don't think this is the case, but let's just for the sake of argument, give him the benefit of the doubt and say that she was, seemed very mature and very much consenting and, and, you know, he didn't think there was anything rapish about it. Even then, he has to know the consequences as a teacher. He's going to lose his job. He's going to go to jail. There's something very wrong with this person. Even if she was totally consenting and totally able to consent, there is something wrong with somebody who would take that kind of risk for their own, you know, for their own livelihood. 
there's there's just something wrong there. Unfortunately, and it is something that we do regularly hear about in the news. So there is something that's just natural in a human being that wants to do something like this. And certainly in these types of human beings, certainly not in everyone. Don't, don't, yeah, don't yeah, it's, it's so, the self-destructiveness, really. I mean, there's no cure for, for pedophiles, people who just are naturally attracted to young people. I'm, I'm oh. not sure that's this case because they did say that she was consensual and there's no argument about that, even though she's only 14. Uh, so they're actually trying to punish him um, under the legal definition rather than some form of, of aggression or, or consensual um, statute or something. But it, it doesn't matter. Like, if, if you're okay with having sex with children, then there's something fundamentally wrong with you. I mean, our, whether you agree with societal norms or not, they define and are defined, I'm sorry, by our laws, you may disagree with that, but that is a fundamental fact that you have to adhere to if you're going to be a part of that society. Having sex with children is a big part of that. There's no way it's okay. It doesn't matter, you know, whether it's consensual or not. It doesn't fucking matter. It's a child. You cannot have sex with them. Period. Don't lead them on. Don't entertain any of their fantasies. Let them know, I'm sorry, but you are a child. I'm an adult. I'm your teacher. You are my student. This cannot happen. But... And we all, you know, I've harped on this and we all sort of understand this concept. What about the 30-day sentencing uh, for for child rape? What about that? I, I, it's amazing. I don't, I don't even understand it. How, I, could, how could anyone agree, oh, well, this is enough, 30 days? I, 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 don't, I don't even know what to say to that one. That's mind-blowing. I mean, they say the judge made somebody must have made a mistake. That can't actually be what the law says. It can't be. Um, it, it's infuriating because we have nonviolent crimes um, sentenced to ridiculous terms. Uh, we have people uh, outing government abuse of power sentenced to decades, and we have someone robbing innocents sentenced to days where are our priorities as a country well actually there's one line in here that kind of the same question comes to mind where are our priorities where's it here the broader message is to really unite as a community against victim blaming says protest organizer sheena davis adding that the protests aim to address quote a larger issue on how we protect children from rape in this justice system, end quote. If you're protecting them in the justice system, you're protecting them a little late. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're addressing it after it's... You, cops don't prevent rapes. They clean up the mess after it happens. You know, I, where are the priorities there? Where's, where's the sense of responsibility for taking care of your own children? I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss this guy's guilt or anything but she was a troubled teen why wasn't anybody you know taking a, a bigger interest in her life and finding out who she was talking to and what she was what was going on after school you know yes very very good point what was bothering me about this article when i was first reading it was that there was a large chunk of it dedicated to the protesting of the judge who who gave the sentence what about the fucking offender? 
Why are yeah. we focusing? I understand you want to address injustice and you want to uh, make this uh, judge resign because of his poor decision making. You want to examine his background. Why? Why not focus on on the criminal and, and the pointing out of the behavior that is just happening all around us, evidenced by regular news articles about this exact same situation. There is obviously a greater problem here, and this one judge is, or his resigning is not going to solve said issue. Uh, addressing this 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 girl or this. Uh, teacher is not going to address the issue. We need to look at the broader context of what is happening in our society and say, either we need to redefine rape, we need to redefine the age of consent, or we need to stop, uh, I don't know, maybe investigate people a little bit more before we put them in these positions of authority over our children. And this goes not just for our education system, it goes for uh, the religious system at large. I mean, I don't even have to talk about that. It, it's it's so prevalent in our society that everyone knows what I'm talking about just by being vague like that. It has to do with every facet of our society. If we want to protect our children, we need to look at the people that are in authority and power over our children. And yet, that doesn't matter. Let's just throw them in with anyone and just, I don't know, cross our fingers or just think that, oh, well, the unions are in charge, so that's okay. I know that sounds anti-union. I don't mean that necessarily. I'm just saying that we need to look at who is in charge of the, who is in a position of authority and whether or not they really should be there. Maybe a little bit more. Um, but hey, you know what? The justice system has spoken. Raping a 14-year-old only deserves a month. Uh, the 14-year-old can kill themselves and, and everyone's the happier because the, the story's over. Um, what do you think, I know I'm being glib and we're going long here. Let, let me address this last little point here if I can. What do you think, Jesse, about her taking her own life? Oh, God, you know. It's tough. <laughs> well, I, I, I will admit, I tried to take my life once. Mm -hmm. And I was like 18 at the time. And, you know, going back to that time, I really didn't believe that things could get better. And if there's anything I've learned in life since then, it's that things will not stay the way they are, however they are now. If they're good, they go they'll get worse. If they're bad, they'll get better. Change is the one thing you can count on. So if things are really, really, really bad, they're bound to get better. But I don't know if there was anybody who told her that or if there was anyone who could have ever convinced her of that. Not with that little life experience. How was she to know, you know? I don't blame her at all. I wouldn't be angry with her for what she did. It's just sad. It is, it is a natural um, emotion to go through when someone is killed or kills himself of, of anger. Um, against the perpetrator or against the individual for doing it. It's a normal human thing of, of not understanding motivations uh, for that individual at that time. And, and it's easy to say, um, certainly in my experience, I had a friend commit suicide when I was in high school, and it's, it's easy to say that they just gave up and that it was just their fault. But if you've lived, then you've been in immense sorrow at some point, and you've known loss and heartache, and you know that you do not always think clearly. You do not always think rationally. 
um, emotion, and, and this is part of what makes us amazing as human beings and horrible, is that we are subject to our irrational emotional uh, state, and and we will uh, we will react rather than think uh, the majority of the time, in my experience, and that's what this girl did, presumably based on this article in this case. Uh, she reacted to her pain and embarrassment and shame and sorrow, and no one should ever blame anyone else. In a, in the case of a death, you should just take the moment and you know react to that moment. In this case, if if you feel sorry for her, you know you feel sorrowful. Um, but what it does speak to is is the if she. It, it, I, I've always blamed the parents in cases like this. Um, when you when you are an active part of your child's life, you will see them uh, being sorrowful. You will see them in extreme joys. Um, you will see them in trouble. If you are actively participating in their life, you will know what's going on with them. Uh, you may not always have control over it. More often than not, you won't. Uh, but you will have an influence if you are part of it. If this girl is having a sexual affair with this teacher and you don't know anything about it, it's possible that she hid it, but it tells me that you weren't that into her life. And if she's going to go through such pain and sorrow as to off herself, it sucks to say it, but you probably weren't that invested in her life. I, I don't blame the parents wholeheartedly. For things like this but never underestimate the power of care and love with your parent oh, I mean sorry with your child as a parent you have to be involved because cases like these can be taken care of there will be pain and there will be aggression and there will be hurt but they can be addressed and you can actually I know this is going to sound crazy you can actually help develop a powerful human being an individual by being a good parent. I I don't want to say she had bad parents because I don't know, but I'm just saying that there might have been more in the parent field in her life than it seems based on this article that there was. And for those of you listening, be involved if you have children. This doesn't necessarily have to happen. Your involvement is is a huge step in shit like this happening i don't know where i was going with that but i'm done <laughs> yeah I, I i don't have kids but i it seems to me if you can teach your kid get them in the habit of handling problems if, if you do nothing other than that just get them in the habit of, of facing a problem and fixing it and celebrating the fact that they fixed it and just get them to think about problems as something to be solved that might make all the difference in the world yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really, really good way to see it. I mean, you don't have to drown in your problems. There are there are ways to get out of it. There are ways to deal with it, not necessarily get out of it. So good point. Um, let's go ahead and move on to the next one really quick here because we are running a bit long here. White House girds for battle with Congress. Obama administration says evidence of sarin use points to Assad regime. Sarin use, not use. Uh, and this was by Jay Solomon and Janet Hook. Uh, posted on the 1st of September. Hey, what do you know? Washington, the White House is girding for more than a week of battle 
with Congress over President Barack Obama's plan to launch limited military strikes against the Syrian regime for its alleged use of chemical weapons last month. To back the administration's position, Secretary of State John Kerry said Sunday that the U.S. had obtained new blood and hair samples from inside Syria that confirmed President Bashar al-Assad's regime used sarin, a powerful nerve agent, against civilians in an August 21 attack on an eastern Damascus suburb. Mr. Kerry said he believes this new evidence will help the White House build more support on Capitol Hill and among allies in Europe and Middle East to take military action aimed at degrading Mr. Assad's ability to conduct chemical warfare. The leaders of the House and Senate said they would hold votes on the need for military action on Syria during the week of September 9. If the United States is unwilling to lead a coalition of people who are prepared to stand up for the international norm with respect to chemical weapons that's been in place since 1925, if we are unwilling to do that, we will be granting a blanket license to Assad to continue to gas Mr. Kerry said on ABC's This Week. We will send a terrible message to the North Koreans, Iranians, and others who might be trying to read How Serious Is America. Mr. Obama... ah, Okay, hold on. (laughs) It's not all about us! (laughs) Why is it always about us? I don't understand that. I bet you money Assad never once thought... I wonder if the U.S. is going to be okay with that before he fucking gassed his own rebel population. I guarantee that didn't even cross. He was dealing with an unmanageable situation. His military leaders were trying to convince him to do it because this limited use of chemical weapons is necessary to stop the rebel aggression. And he thought, this is a necessary evil. Do it. Just like your your, your commentary, Jesse, on Game of Thrones, there's no right and wrong. It's personal... Uh, decision-making, it, 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 it's their individual mandate that is going to dictate whether or not they gas someone or not. It has nothing to do with whether or not it's the United States looking over the shoulder, uh, giving a thumbs up or down about it. And it's infuriating that it's suddenly about us. These people were gassed by their own government, many of them innocent, not even a part of the rebel, uh, I was going to say alliance, but that's a little too Star, <laughs> star Wars, <laughs> even though I love it. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're part of the Rebel Alliance. Mm. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a trap. Ah, but, like, these were in the vast majority, just innocent, innocent civilians that happened to be in a place where rebels happened to be operating out of, in this case, Damascus suburb, and they were gassed and murdered uh, because of it. it. It means nothing to America about this. And this, this idea that, okay, so... Addressing the article directly here, um, President Obama is now deferring, and I love this, uh, he's now deferring to Congress. You see, it's okay to ask Congress for permission to assault people when it's not in your best interest as a president, as with Mr. Bush. (laughs) He just does it and then asks Congress for permission later. Uh, When it's Obama, in this one minuscule case, he asks for permission first because he's thinking about his legacy. Like I said last week, he does not want to be known as the second Bush uh, to just go out and strike a foreign power, um, uh, stopping them uh, in, in their own country from doing things that we personally see as reprehensible uh, for the benefit of their own populace, never at once having anything to do with any of our own country or the repercussions of that action. So he's looking out to Congress and asking them for uh, saying, I don't want to fucking do this, but if you guys say it's okay, 
knowing how worthless and defunct our Congress is. Our Congress is a, a low, a popular, a popular appreciation low that has never been reached before. Never in the history of the United States. That's amazing. The, the United States population thinks nothing good of this Congress. Uh, absolutely nothing. And so he's going to defer to that well-thought-of body to decide. And, and realistically, if we're going to declare war on a country, and they're not saying that they're going to, but if they are, then it has to be through Congress. They have to approve it. Understandable. This isn't war. This is limited military action, whatever the fuck that means. Um, so he's deferring that decision to Congress, who already is hated, so he doesn't have to worry about his legacy or the impact of this potential limited military assault on um, Syria. What do you, Jesse, think of this? Well, I think if we do anything in Syria, we will, and, and, and this is a great quote, but it's not mine, but uh, we are spending money we don't have to kill people we don't know for reasons we do not understand. <laughs> And I think that was Teller, the magician that said that. But uh, <laughs> and he, it, it wasn't about Syria. It's just that's the recurrent theme yeah. with the, with this country lately. And it's none of our business. It's not like I like seeing people get gassed to death. It is none of our business. We have no, we have no right to go over there and do anything about it. I, I don't think, personally. Yeah. I do think it's smart what Obama's doing. Based, you know, if I was in his position, I would do literally the exact same thing. I would say, well, uh, let's let's have Congress deal with it. Oh, yeah. I think he's playing it smart politically at this point. But I think he played it stupid politically when he said the first, you know, red line in the sand. Yeah. And that that was an idiot, idiotic move. And I'm glad it's come back like a pie in the face for him. It is so funny because he never fucking thought that this would happen. Like, I guarantee he just thought, hey, if we threaten, that's enough. <laughs> and then it happened. He's like, holy fuck. Oh, my God. What do I do? Oh, it's funny. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think a lot of places in the world, if they ever worried about us, are worrying about us less. You know, I, I think the fact that we're not all we claim to be is becoming more and more obvious. It's tough because on ones, I, I think, and this is just on based on my experience, I think generally the world sees us in two separate ways. They see the United States as um, uh, as a country, and then they see the United States as a military force. Um, there is no hiding the fact that that countries fear the military industrial complex of the United States. That is unarguable. Our training is far superior and our execution is far superior than anything else out there right now. Um, what our country is, though, is this absurd hypocritical entity that focuses more on corporatism than it does its own populace. And then we, we have these corporations help fund these puppets into office and, and and we just go along for the ride as if it was a sport, fighting for our home team, put, you know, political parties being the home teams, and cheer when our team wins, and never really look at the consequences behind that funding of of the corporate interests. Um, and so I always have to look. Well, what's what's the benefit of us going into Syria? Why is there not greater 
push for us going into Syria, like there was for Iraq, like there was for Afghanistan. Um, I mean, it was very much more blatant for Afghanistan, but for Iraq, I mean, what the fuck was the, the interest behind that? And it always leads to corporation backing, power, um, benefit, not of the United States benefit. So I look at Syria and, and you think, well, why the fuck haven't we done something sooner? Because Syria doesn't have anything for us. There's no, there's no benefit for a corporate interest. It's never about the human element. It's never been about the human element. It's always been about the benefit to some imaginary entity that in the United States has voting power. It, it's an amazing thing to me. Well, I agree with everything you said, but there's one aspect that I don't know if we disagree on or just you didn't mention this. People may fear the military might of the people should fear the military might of the United States. I mean, we got a damn good military. However, wars cost money and we don't have money. And I think that's plainly obvious to most of the world. So are we as big of a threat as we might seem if you only look at our military might? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Because people have got to realize sooner or later, China calls in the debt, and then what are we going to do? You know, we can't afford to use our military might, even though we have it. Yeah, and I, I totally, totally get what you're saying. Um, the, the, the economics of war is rarely considered. Um, and I think that's because we, we have the Federal Reserve managing our currency uh, a non-government agency so i mean without getting into a broader context here and just speaking directly to the the concept of not being able to afford it money is only worth what we tell people it's worth whether i mean our money is literally printed paper so how valuable is that we, we tell people it's a value and they believe it because we tell them that um our debt guarantees worth. And, and this is a concept that I just genuinely don't think people really grasp. We have so many people with so much vested interest money into our country's economy being healthy and vibrant. China will never call in the debt because they'll never be able to get it. Like, all they have of their debt is our political influence. And, and they are using that as currency. So we think of money in this, in this physical terms. But we live in an era where we print money. And money is only as valuable as we say. There's no, there's no physical backing of it. There's no like gold standard currency. It, it's literally we, we print something and we say, well, we have this much and it's worth this much. And, and you know, that's the truth. It's all abstract. It's all emotions. I mean, the entire stock market is emotion based. So, so when, when we say we don't have money or, or our economy is going to judge whether or not people should fear us in, in, a, in a military or economic standpoint, I have to disagree and say it, it's not the money, it's the emotional baggage uh, that goes along with it. I, I really don't think that anyone, I mean, Saudi Arabia has a ton of our debt. I mean, a ton of it. Um, Norway. Who would think Norway has a lot of our debt? I mean, that's weird. Um, China has a ton of our debt. I don't well, Nor think Norway has oil. Yeah. Norway is one of the biggest oil producers in the world. So it's just this weird idea that that 
you, you know, we're going to have these people calling in debt, but look at their economies. I mean, we're all literally tap dancing. Yeah, well, I, I don't think China's going to call in the debt in that sense. And not like, you know, like a, a bank calls in your mortgage and that's it, you're out of your house. It's more like we become China's bitch. And, and <laughs> you know, now our military serves their interests because, well, we need another loan and they've got the money and they'll give us the loan if we take care of a few things or in the political stage for them. I mean, I, maybe that's already happening. Maybe it'll never happen. Maybe that's a crazy idea in my head. I don't know. But it, I, I think money matters probably more than maybe anything else in these questions. I think it really comes down to money. Yeah, I guess I, I, guess I wish it could be that way. Um, it's just, I mean, obviously we just see it differently. But I mean, I wish it could be that way because China artificially in, inflates its own currency. So... How can it stand on? I, I figure if, if you're going to be able to call in debt, you have to be on good ground yourself. But we can point to how China is artificially inflating its own currency. So we can blanket statements say you're claiming X amount, but really you're only Y amount. Of, of We're only Y amount of debt to you because you're faking what your economy can actually produce or what your dollar is actually worth or your yen, whatever it is. So... I think that's one big thing. I, I, I honestly think that, that the buying up of debt in other countries is more akin to um, uh, a form of a treaty than it is um, economic power. I don't know if that made any sense. I think it's more about the, the political than it is about the economical. But um, point stands, uh, it, it's interesting and... It's this is what's wonderful about politics is that there's no there's no absolute human motivation is what defines that's the word I was looking for before holy <laughs> shit it's just fucking motivation um is what defines the, this whole entire process and so you always got to look at you know what's the benefit what's the individual benefit and if it's not an individual benefit it's a group benefit um and that's what's so fantastic about politics this is not just party versus party that's just a fucking football that's a Super Bowl that's bullshit. It's not real. So. Well, I think the one thing we can agree on is that nobody in any power is doing anything because of kid, dead kids in Syria. <laughs> That's yes. got nothing to do with it. Hells yes. Amazingly. Um, yeah, well, let's, let's go ahead and move on to the uh, creature feature. I want to talk about Star Trek. Are you a Trekkie? I am. Really? I haven't, I haven't seen this new movie, but I am, yeah. Okay, I'll be careful about what I say. Um, let's go ahead and move on to the creature feature. What's this show called? What do you mean, what is it called? You know, what's the name of the show? What, like the title? What, what's the title of the show? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the title of the show? Look, it should be good enough for you and for any of you other Generation Y's or X's or W's or Z's or, or, or whatever fancy letter you're, you're sitting on today to, to realize that it's not about what the title is. It's not about... When I was your kid, there's only one thing that we had growing up. When we wanted to watch a show, we just turned on the telly on Saturday mornings, and you know what we got? Do you know? Do you have any idea what we got? No, I have no idea. Why are you freaking out? Every single Saturday. And we didn't know what shows were, what, what titles were, or, or what... We had no choices on what to watch. We were stuck with the creature feature, and so are you. 
Hi, uh, welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm going to be talking about Star Trek Into Darkness. And this is going to be available via DVD very, very soon. I, I think it's like the 9th or something like that. But it's actually available now to buy from iTunes if you just want to watch it digitally. And a buddy of mine had brought his uh, version uh, from iTunes and we watched it. And I... Well, let me set it up like this way. Um... Jesse, you said mm. you're a Trekkie, right? Yes. You like Star Trek? Yes. Did you... Now, are you a Star Trek fan as in the originals? I watched I, all of the original series, uh, most of the ones with Picard, some of the Deep Space Nine, and even a few of the uh, the ones with... Uh, nah, the lady there. That old hag that was uh, commander <laughs> of the other one. <laughs> wow. Did you like what J.J. Abrams did with the original Star Trek reboot? I did. I, I really did. I thought that was a fun movie. I mean, the whole concept of how do you get, how do you introduce new characters playing, new actors playing the old characters and have everybody young again, that was a, a very good transition. Yeah. I mean, the red matter was kind of stupid, but the, the, it was a great transition <laughs> of characters. Did you like the... Um the vibe, did it feel the same to you as the, the original stuff or, or, or did it feel different? It felt different, but I didn't mind that because I thought there was, they got good actors in there. I, I really liked the guy that got to play Bones. I really liked the Scotty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the Sulu was really good. Actually, the one thing that really bothered me even more than the red matter on that last film was you get a bunch of new new recruits, I don't, ensigns, whatever their rank was, send them out on one mission, they come back, and now suddenly they're all allowed to keep ranking positions on the premier starship in the fleet after <laughs> one mission. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> so I, I think most of Star Trek is, is a just enjoy it for <laughs> the ride and don't try to look too deep into it. Uh, my history with Star Trek is my my father-in-law loved it, and so he watched it, and I occasionally sat with him and watched it. I watched the movies with him. Um, I didn't particularly like it that much. I was much more of a Star Wars fan. And so I was very excited when J.J. Abrams decided to reboot the Star Trek series and the original, uh, well, the last movie that came out, the reboot, um, was, I thought, fantastic. It, it had a cinematic quality that is what, that was on par of the best of Star Wars. It had this, this solid story, um, solid as in entertaining, um, a touch of science, but it didn't go too far, which I, as a child, you know, with a child's mind, I thought the original Star Treks did. It went a little too far. Um, a little too hoity-toity on its own science feet than it should have been if it wanted to be entertaining to the masses. Sort of catered to fans rather than, you know, the populace, which I guess is the point, whatever. Um, I just felt like this didn't have it. It was just, it was it was supposed to be an entertaining story uh, for a larger group of people. And if you were trekking and enjoyed it, all the better. So that's why I really dug it. Um, and it was a great transition, like you just said, about uh, having younger character actors uh, compared to the older character actors that everyone's used to. It was, it was a really entertaining way of, of switching it up. So Star Trek Into Darkness, I didn't want to see. I had no interest at all. I didn't go to the theaters and see it. it. It just, none of the trailers made it look interesting to me. And I didn't even know what it was, a, like the core story was about. 
because I just didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, and I, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but if you haven't seen Star Trek Into Darkness or you've never seen any of the trailers or you don't know what the basic premise is of this film, turn off the podcast because I'm going to give the basic premise. Uh, okay, so if you haven't turned it off, then you've either seen it or you don't care about learning. And are you okay with me telling you, Jessica? Yeah, no, that's fine. That's okay, fine. So the basic premise is it deals with Khan, which if you ever watched the original movies, was a big, big, big part of the movies. It, it was just this really sort of iconic moment of Captain Kirk yelling, Khan! And this sort of back and forth between these two hero and, and anti-hero characters. In this movie... They packaged it brilliantly. I have to say, I loved Fringe because I felt like it was what Star Trek should have always been and, and the X-Files mixed together. It should have been a wonderful dose of, of this pseudoscience Fringe information with entertaining characters and there was this interdimensionality to it, but it wasn't over the top, just space. So I thought Fringe was amazing, so I really loved J.J. Abrams for that. And I really dug what he did with the original, like I already said. So with this... He he did it again after I sat down and watched it 30 minutes in. I was absolutely hooked. And if you don't like Star Trek, you can um, connect with this story on, on just the story alone. Connect with the movie just in the story alone. So um, there's a terrorist, Khan, that, and this is the basic premise, bombs a building, um, murders a bunch of individuals, and the uh, Starfleet is now searching for... Th- Khan, um, based on that information, as a terrorist, and they're supposed to execute him via drone strike um, without due process. And so this resonates with a very American flair to it, because it's exactly what's going on right now in American history. Uh, A terrorist strikes us, we send out drone strikes to take care of him instead of dealing with due process. Um, So on that element alone, if you're just into American politics, this movie will be fantastic because it brings up some very interesting questions that we should be asking ourselves as Americans right now, and a lot of us are. Um, If you're just into it for action uh, at its core, there's some amazing sequences in this film. And it's what's great about it is it's not on this grandiose scale. It's very much, I, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it's very much video game oriented where it's first person or third person action. You are over the shoulder or, or through the eyes of one of these characters and just reacting to the, the it, I don't it, either a shootout or uh, a starship fight. That's very cool. One thing that took me out of this movie that I thought was amazing was the way they dealt with, and this is going to sound really geeky, warp speed. Um, I've always sort of thought of it as in terms of like uh, this wormhole that cinematically they made into this sort of like tube of light. But the way they dealt with it in the story or in this movie is it uh, they're just moving faster and they could be knocked out of it. So it's not it's not like a wormhole or anything like that. It's, it's just they're moving really super fast. And maybe that's always the way it was. And I just never really thought of it that way. But they were knocked out of uh, warp speed or hyperdrive or whatever the fuck it's called in this damn movie um, multiple times. And it was really interesting visually how they did that. It, it took me out of the entire series and, and just, I mean, the entire movie and it just made me stop and think it was, which is fantastic in any movie. If it makes you think it's, it was really great. Did the characters get whiplash? 
um, they were knocked around okay. um, dramatically, okay. which was a little bit more than the original Star Trek when they were like sort of shot and they all just sort of shifted in their seats. Because it, be, it would be hysterical if like the next scene they've all got those big white collars. <laughs> then you know the entire crew of the ship because they got knocked out of warp that would be funny <laughs> their college is bing <laughs> flip out it was really great I, I i can't say enough good things about this so the characters did a wonderful job if you like the first movie this movie in turn the characters are gonna be awesome the story in my opinion is better because it's more centered on what we're dealing with as an american audience and certainly you could even carry that through to a world audience politically uh right now so that connects you with it and then it's just the the cinematic nature of it it's 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 so visceral and i don't know it's it's, it's just it, it speaks to the the uh the demand of a movie nowadays like you couldn't just have it be oh let me think uh flash gordon back in the day you, you couldn't pull off a B-movie type setup. I mean, they did a really good job. And, and what they didn't do was go overboard like with the Star Wars Episode 1, 2, and 3 with the cinematics, uh, with the graphics. It, it was still very much real and, and you could you know believe everything that was happening if you already believed in the Star Trek universe. So I, I thought it was genuinely a fantastic movie. Emotionally, believe it or not, I almost fucking cried at a point. So it was... It was a really, really touching human story at points. And I always connect with those, no matter what the background is, whether it's Star Trek background, Star Wars background, or just some crazy shoot 'em up background. As long as there's a human element to it, and I can believe the characters believe what they're expressing, then I will buy into it. Uh, and this show really, really did it. So I would actually rate it better than the original Star Trek, just for that. Let me ask you one question about it. Yeah. Um... How was the villain? Because I think a lot of what can make a, a movie is, is the villain believable? Is the villain oh, some, man. you know, it, it, can you imagine yourself being the villain if you, you know, happen to be in their shoes? I mean, even if you take it to like the first Alien movie, mm -hmm. the villains, they were just breeding. They were just yeah. doing what they do. It was nothing malevolent, you know, malevolent about it. If you got, and I think that's why Khan was such a, a big hit with the first series, and then he came back in the movies. And for one thing, they had a great actor playing him, but he was also a very believable and understandable character. So um, how was how was the villain in this one? Okay, well, I'm very glad you asked me that because that this is a point that I didn't actually speak to, and I really, really wanted to when I was thinking about this earlier. When my buddy first introduced me to this, he said, "This is the bad guy in this is Benedict uh, Cumberbatch." Cumberbatcher, I don't know how to say his last name, but he actually is playing um, Sherlock in the series Sherlock right now. Very different role, but similar notes. Um, so he had a problem because he enjoyed and watched that um, connecting the character. I'm sorry, with the actor with this character he was playing in this. I didn't have that baggage. I didn't. I've never seen that. I've never seen this actor before. So there was a moment when um, this actor was talking about his motivations, why he was doing what he was doing, what his personal history was, that he went through this emotional transformation that I was, as a viewer, stunned by. Like, few actors pull this off well, and he did it amazingly well. And what's great is 
it added to the story. It wasn't just this is the bad guy and this is why he's doing it. It it was connected to the entire theme of the entire story of this is a government organization doing X. And this is a bad guy that they brought in to accomplish Y. And this is why it's all horrible Z. Like, it connected every single piece of the story in making it believable, which I think is incredibly important if you're going to have a bad guy as a part of a story, to make it a believable bad guy, not just the fucking twisty, you know, mustache bad guy tying damsels in distress to fucking railroad tracks. I mean, there's an actual reason why he's doing what he's doing. And I saw this in Man of Steel as well, where you saw... Uh, General Zod actually having a reason. It may not be a good one. It may not be the one that you would follow, but it's a reason that connects to the core of the character. And Khan had it. And he did a really, really good job in selling it. And there's just this moment when you're watching the action in this uh, and you're watching his emotional response and you're, you just can't help but just sit back and say, holy fuck. Like, damn, this is badass. This, I'm sold. Like, this This guy is Khan. There is no one before him. And this is a great reason for him to be doing what he's doing. And I'm having a hard time disagreeing with it. Like, that's the greatest. When, when you have an emotional conflict with seeing someone as a projected bad guy, that's the wonderful part of it. And it was called into play in this. And that's what is, is a big part of what made it, the story, completely believable. And, and is testament to the, the actor's prowess um, throughout this entire show. I am so looking forward to seeing this movie now. <laughs> I, I can't wait for you to see it. And I'm going to obviously have belted up so much that everyone's like, ah, it's not that good. I truly enjoyed it. And I almost fucking cried on one point. And it was crazy good. Like, I was stunned at how good it was. So, yeah. Yeah. If you, if you weren't wanting to see it because you didn't think it was going to be good, watch it because it will be good. If you're into Star Trek... And you can divorce yourself from the previous Wrath of Khan, you will love it. There are a few sort of callbacks to that, but it's not the same. It is not a remake. So keep that in your mind. A very, very good show. I, I highly recommend it. And you know what? I think that's going to do it for this show. All right. Wah, wah. Sad panda music. We just got another beer, too. Man, I'm going to have to carry out this outro <laughs> a little bit longer. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Jesse. It was so much fun. I had a great time. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy that you could join me for the entirety of the show, and I hope we can do it again. Oh, I hope so, too. All right, and everyone out there, if you're listening and you like what Damned Lucky, at Damned Lucky on uh, Twitter is doing, let her know. Go to Twitter if you're a part of it, and I, I mean, fucking virtually everyone is. Um, follow at Damned Twitter. <laughs> follow at Damned Lucky. And uh, let her know what you like, what you don't like, whether you agree or disagree. Voice your opinion there. Um, it's nice that I get to hear what you guys think, and I truly do appreciate it. But they like the, the, the individuals that are being a huge part of this show, that are contributing to it, love to hear it too. And I know that Jesse would as well. So let her know what you think. And if you completely disagree, definitely let her know. I want to know of enemies. <laughs> Flame war. Flame war. Flame on, you trolls. All right. So like I said, that's going to do it. I hope you enjoyed it for this show. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence, as you have been, to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. 
You can visit the Satanet Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed, found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching for 9 Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. I just got one more the other day. Thank you very much, and uh, keep them coming, people. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. I can't say it enough. Read the Satanic Bible. Read the Satanic Scriptures. Visit the website. There is a ton, a ton of valuable content about Satanism on churchofsatan.com. Do yourself a favor and check it out. And the only way this podcast is going to continue, the only way it's going to live, is if you tell someone. You tell a friend, you tell a coworker, you tell an enemy, you tell someone. Share nine cents. Let's build this podcast together. Help spread the word, people. And in final, once again, thank you for joining. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Jesse. And until next week, hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan.